The scripture reading is from Daniel chapter 8, verses 1 through 14. It can be found on page 745 in the Black Bibles. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal, I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great." As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it, together with the regular burnt offering, because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Juliana. Thank you also, John. Uh, that was super encouraging. I really appreciate it. I'm wondering right now if, if you guys are thinking what I'm thinking. Uh, because what I'm thinking is nothing says mom more than flying goats, right? Is that what y'all are? That's what I'm thinking. Um, you know, nevertheless, here we are at one of the most detailed and really most powerful prophetic visions in the entire Bible. In fact, this particular prophecy of Daniel is so detailed and the historical markers that come after it so accurate that this is one of those places in the Bible where people that don't trust the Bible, critical scholars and others, suggest that, that this particular passage had to have been written much later 
than when it was claimed to be written because it is so accurate. Because they could not possibly believe that somebody like Daniel could receive a vision like this that would play out in the way that it did. That is, of course, presupposing that prophecy is impossible. And just so you all know, we are not presupposing that prophecy is impossible. We are actually presupposing that God can do whatever he wants to do, including reveal to Daniel and then have Daniel write down for us uh, something that is important and powerful, not only to him, but also to us. I'm not going to assume this morning a lot of prior interaction with passages like this, so this is going to be one of those sermons where I kind of preach and teach at the same time. You know, last week, if you were here, uh, our assistant pastor, Willis Weatherford, preached an outstanding sermon for Senior Sunday. He was asked to make it short, and he did. And so I'm going to take all of my time and the time that he didn't take last week. I'm just going to claim that. Um, So anyway, buckle up, let's pray, and uh, ask God to help us. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would instruct us in it now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. On Easter morning, not even a month ago, six suicide bombers walked into churches and hotels in Sri Lanka, setting off bombs, killing both those that were gathered to worship and injuring, those that were gathered to worship the Lord and to celebrate his resurrection, and visitors from all over the world that were staying in those hotels. At the last tally, somewhere around 300 people were killed in that attack. Before that attack and after that attack, Churches and Christian worshipers in China, in East Asia, in Africa, and in Europe have been subject to violence or harassment or imprisonment or property destruction. These recent attacks are horrible. And because of the 24-hour news cycle and because of social media, we know a lot about it. But the truth is this is not exactly new. Violence towards Christians and unfortunately violence from people also claiming to be followers of Christ have been a part of the experience of the church ever since the first century, ever since the resurrection of Jesus. A disruption of worship, a disruption of the life of the church, fear, violence then retaliatory violence and thus a distorted view of what the mission of the church actually is. Loss of property, loss of life. This has been and this will be a part of what it means to live in the world until the source of that violence, until the source of that fear, sin and the evil that results in it are destroyed at the return of Jesus. We know this to be true because of Daniel 8 and passage like Daniel 8 in the Bible. Daniel 8 teaches us that our enemy, the devil, has, is, and will use human beings as instruments in the world to thwart the purposes of God and his ultimate rule over all things. But he will not succeed in this because evil and evildoers are not the end of the story. Jesus and his victory over sin and death are ultimately the end of the story. So if you read the last page of the book, so to speak, first about the ultimate future victory of Jesus, 
And what allows you as a follower of Jesus to endure, to persevere, to live with hope and with faith, then we know that what we experience in this world right now is temporary. That God's kingdom endures forever. That those who are united to Jesus Christ inherit eternal life and inherit God's kingdom. God wins the battle. If you trust in Jesus Christ, you win with him. Evil, Satan, sin, ultimately lose. So let's walk through this passage and see what we can learn from it. The vision that Daniel has takes place two years after the vision that he received in Daniel chapter 7. We looked at that several weeks ago. During the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, who was the last Babylonian king to rule before he was defeated by the kings of Medea, Persia. Now in the vision, in the vision he is transported, visionary-wise, uh, to Susa, which is the capital of Persia, which is modern-day Aram. And here's what he sees. The first thing that Daniel sees in this vision is a ram with two horns thrashing about in every direction. Now this, according to verse 21, if we had read the entire chapter, you would see that a lot of this is interpreted for Daniel. Uh, according to, chapter, to verse 21, this ram represents the two kings of Medea and Persia, the world power that conquered Babylon. So this is not too far in the distant future from the time in which Daniel actually lived. This was the power that conquered Belshazzar and took over power in that part of the world. But while this ram is still thrashing about and still exercising its power in the world, Daniel sees something really crazy. A goat with a horn, one horn between its eyes, flying, not running, but flying across the whole earth, charging at this ram. And the goat defeats the ram, crashes into it, throws it to the ground, defeats it, and tramples it under its feet. But then the big horn, the singular horn between the eyes of this goat broke off and was replaced by four horns. And then to make things even more confusing, out of one of those horns grew a little horn uh, uh, that grew out of one of the larger horn. And that small horn, that little horn that grew out of all of the other ones, that is actually what becomes the focus of the rest of the chapter of Daniel chapter 8. So first, the kind of easy part. Verse 21 tells us that the goat that flies across the earth and defeats the ram represents the king of Greece. We understand this now to be Alexander the Great, who moved with great speed and power to conquer Persia in 334 B.C., and therefore became the great power in the world at that time. The problem was that Alexander, also being evil, was, was a, well, he was not a, he was a, he was a tough, and tough character. Alexander died at 33 years old. And when he died, the kingdom that he had established split up and fragmented among four different leaders, thus the four horns on the goat, on, on the goat, and they were all competing for power. Now, one of those four leaders is a man whose name is Antiochus Epiphanes. He is not famous. Well, he's kind of famous, but he's not as famous as Alexander the Great. 
nor was he as powerful as Alexander the Great. Yet this man, this little horn growing out of one of those four horns is actually the focus of the chapter of Daniel chapter 8. Why? Why is a, a character who is way less known than one of the most characters in all of Western civilization, Alexander the Great, why, is he the folk, why does he get an entire chapter of the Bible? Well, verse 9 tells us, Antiochus Epiphanes, this little horn that grew out of one of the other four horns, turned his wrath and his evil toward the glorious land. Israel. Jerusalem, the land of God's people. So the question here is not this. Who is the most powerful ruler over all the earth? The question of Daniel chapter 8 is, how did powerful leaders and rulers and conquerors respond to God and his people? The little horn, Antiochus Epiphanes, is singled out in this chapter because his evil is directed with demonic hatred against the people of God and the God that they represent in the world. So what do we know about this man, Antiochus Epiphanes? Well, the first thing we know about Antiochus Epiphanes is that's not his real name. His name is Antiochus IV. He is the one who gave himself a name, and the name that he gave himself was Theos Antiochus Epiphanes, which translated from Greek means the illustrious God. So we knew what he thought about himself, right? In Daniel 7, we're in Daniel 8 now, so go back one chapter. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a vision of what we would probably now call the final Antichrist. That is a vision in Daniel chapter 7 of the last battle, the very last battle, between satanic forces and Jesus, where Jesus casts Satan and his agents into the outer darkness. He wins the final battle. He establishes kingdom. The new heavens and the new earth are established. What we understand now is heaven, and his people live with him eternally there. <clears throat> the Apostle John tells us in 1 John chapter 2, that while there is this final antichrist that lies out there somewhere in the unknown future, John says, many antichrists have come and will come. And you can define an antichrist as anyone in a position of power and influence that uses that power and uses that influence in a way that is set against Jesus and his rule and his kingdom. Now, I want to offer a little bit of a disclaimer here and make us to be you know, careful. This word antichrist, if you watch TV preachers or you read things like that, it gets thrown around all the time. All the time. It shouldn't. It should not get thrown around all the time. It should get thrown around when people like Antiochus Epiphanes come on the scene or, 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 or maybe certain other things. But what we are talking about when we talk biblically about an antichrist is a human leader in a position of power that is being used as a tool, an instrument of the devil, of the evil one, to try to wipe out and destroy God's people and his purposes. In other words, this is not a political leader that you don't like. Don't say that. Don't say that. And don't listen to people who say that. That is not what it is. Because, I say that because you can literally 
incite acts of violence. Leaders like me, I'll say this, leaders like me in the church could literally incite acts of violence by going around throwing the word antichrist around irresponsibly. Please don't do that. That is not what we're talking about. We're talking about someone who is set about trying to actually destroy God's purposes and his people, like Antiochus Epiphanes, who is prophesied in Daniel chapter 8. He is not the Antichrist, not the final one that Jesus finally defeats to usher into his kingdom, but according to 1 John 2, he's a precursor of that. He is an Antichrist. So this is what we learn from Daniel chapter 8 about what this person does and the historical record I'm going to tell you about Antiochus Epiphanes corroborates and validates this prophecy. What do we know about Antiochus Epiphanes? Well, he occupied Jerusalem. He took the high priest, the rightful high priest, out of the temple and he replaced it with one of his own who would do whatever it is that he wanted to do. He was not supposed to do that. He invaded Egypt and he was rumored to be dead. And when he was rumored to be dead, the people of Jerusalem yanked the false high priest out of the temple and tried to reinsert the rightful high priest. Antiochus Epiphanes was not dead. He interpreted this as an act of rebellion. He invaded the city and he killed tens of thousands of inhabitants of Jerusalem. He sacrificed a pig on the altar in the Holy of Holies. He stole the sacred furnishings in the temple. He later went into Jerusalem and murdered 20,000 people, 20,000 Jews, as they were gathered together for worship on the Sabbath day. He placed a statue of Zeus in the temple and he made human sacrifices on the altar in the temple of God. Antiochus Epiphany set himself over God himself and sought to subjugate and to destroy God's people. He is an antichrist who, like others before him and after him, are precursors to the future antichrist who will fight a big but losing battle against the risen Jesus. Now, that's a lot. That's a lot. I, I get that's a lot of information. And there's a, a valid question that you may be asking right now because I was asking it this week. What does that have to do with me? What does that have to do with you and me? Well, let's think about how we should respond to what we learn from Daniel chapter 8. The first response is to be aware. To be aware. There really is no reason for a follower of Jesus to be naive about evil and wickedness in the world. God tells us that it exists. And he tells us that it is going to happen. It should come as no surprise and we should not put on rose-colored glasses and pretend that it isn't there. It's all here in Daniel 8. But there's encouragement here as well and it is this. There's two actually. First, God allows you to know these things. What Daniel 8 should produce in you is at least a strong consideration regarding the truth of the Bible. If you're a Christian, this passage can encourage you that you can trust God and you can trust his word. The specificity and the accuracy of this prophecy is astounding. Which is exactly why people who don't trust the Bible say, well, it's so accurate that it couldn't have actually happened. This had to have been written, you know, much later after the fact of these kinds of things. But no, you can trust God. 
you can trust the word of God. He allows you to know. Second, he wants you to know. Verse 16 is instructed not just for Daniel, but for you. We didn't read this verse, but what happens in verse 16 is that Daniel sees this vision and he doesn't understand it. And so God sends his angel, Gabriel, down and says, Gabriel, please interpret this vision for Daniel. And so he does. So Gabriel interprets the vision for Daniel and Daniel writes it down. Why? For us. He writes it down for us. God wants you to know that living this world is going to be hard, but that the hardness and the difficulty and the struggles that we face in this world are not indications of God's lack of control over the world or over your life. It's indicative of the result of sin in the world and the fact that the evil one, variously called Satan or the devil or the evil one in the Bible, who's active in this world, uses his human instruments to accomplish his evil purposes and seeks to do harm to God by doing harm to his people. And this is real. God wants you to know that. You know, in a secularizing culture like the one that we live in, not, you know, here in Houston we kind of have, I don't know, we kind of have one foot in kind of um, sort of Judeo-Christian values and one foot out of it. Maybe we've got a foot and two toes out of it. And, you know, how many toes does that leave left? Three toes in it. I don't know. But in a secularizing culture, we have a problem regarding evil. Not the existence of evil. That's a problem, you know, for a lot of things. But, but we have a problem with explaining or understanding why horrible things happen, you know, in, in the world. You see, if you don't believe in sin... If you don't believe that there is such a thing against, uh, as God and therefore rebellion against God uh, and, and that, that our hearts are turned away from God and his purposes until God does something to turn our hearts toward him. If you don't believe in that, you have to figure out a way to explain terrible things that happen in the world. Today, I think the most popular explanation for the horrible things that happen in the world for people that don't believe in God are sociological or economic or uh, irrationality. You know, it goes like this. People who have been oppressed by totalitarian regimes and lack economic opportunity will try to disrupt those regimes through violence. Or... People who do really bad things are simply mentally unstable. Those are kind of your two explanations for evil in the world. So we have a terrorist attack against, you know, uh, you know like 9-11. 9-11 happens, and if, you, and if you don't have a concept of God or sin or of rebellion or of evil, you have to explain that some way. And so people will say that this could not be motivated by evil or religious devotion, but because of economic and political dispossession. They don't have economic opportunities. They don't have anything to do. And so they are going to you know, incite violence. Or violence in America that is, is, is a result of simply of irrationality or instability. But here's a couple of things to think about. One, did you know that two of the Sri Lankan suicide bombers were brothers... And they were sons of a spice trader 
who was either the most or one of the wealthiest men in all of Sri Lanka. Economically, socially, they were completely set. Doesn't make sense in, 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 in light of our kind of understanding of the reason that violent things happen. Did you also know that the man who was accused of murdering Jewish worshipers in San Diego a couple of weeks ago was raised in a Presbyterian church that is very much like this one. An Orthodox Presbyterian church was a very close cousin to our denomination, the PCA. He was economically well off, he had received a very good explanation, and he wrote in justification of his act of evil and wickedness a very coherent and a very cogent explanation of why he was doing what he was going to do, complete with Bible verses and everything. People want to say that it's because of irrationality or instability, but what he wrote was completely rational, but completely wicked and completely evil. It is frankly much, it makes much more sense honestly to understand that there is sin in the world. That sin results in brokenness against God and other human beings. And that there is such a thing as evil and wickedness in the world that is set against God and set against his purposes. God wants you to know that. He wants you to know that and not to be deceived. Because in Daniel 8, if you step back from the exact uh, things that are going on in this prophecy and you, and you go to about 20,000 feet, you can see what Satan is trying to accomplish here. You can see the strategy of the evil one. God wants you to know this so you will not be deceived and so that you can fight against him. God wants you to know what, what the evil one is doing through human instruments to try to destroy God and his purposes and his people. And there are these things. First, the first strategy of the evil one is disrupted worship. Verses 10 and 11 talk about this instrument of Satan going in and disrupting the worship of God, offering false sacrifices, all those things that we said that Antiochus Epiphanes actually did. Here's the thing. Satan hates it when God's people gather together. What we're doing right now hates it. The worst possible thing that you could be doing in, 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 in his eyes. Because when we gather together for worship, true things happen. And we're taking time out of our weeks where we're generally tempted to bow down to false idols and to worship wrong things. And we're going, oh yes, God sits on his throne. God is real. God, please forgive me for not worshiping you this week and you're restored in him. And, you are, and then you are being built up and you are being sent out in the world to represent him. Satan hates all of that, all of it. So we give a, and so he tries to disrupt that. So he disrupts the worship of God's people, sometimes very loudly and sometimes very subtly. Loudly, like sending evil instruments and evil human beings into churches in Sri Lanka and other places to set off bombs. But here in Houston, he has some other strategies. 
Here in Houston, he generally whispers to us rather than shouts to us about the importance of gathering together with God's people for worship. He whispers things in our ears like this. You know, you don't really have all that much in common with all these people. And you know, you really get more close, you, you get closer to God in the duck blind or in the, in the, in the bay boat than you do in the church. You know that's true. Just be in nature. You don't need God's people. You don't need worship. You just need to be out of the city. Or you know that that woman who sits next to you in the next cubicle, you know where she is right now, right? She's in her cubicle. She's getting work done. You're somewhere else. You're here. You know you're going to get left behind if you don't go to work. Or You know, if you don't let slash make your kid play, insert, you know, sport here, year round, all the time, every week, you're going to ruin their life. You don't want to be a bad parent. You don't want to ruin their life. That's too risky. He whispers those. He doesn't shout them. He whispers them, trying to disrupt our worship. The second thing, the second strategy of Satan is he substitutes idols in our lives for the real, true, living God. Verse 12. Just like Antiochus Epiphany set up a statue of Zeus, like for real, a statue of Zeus, and conducted human sacrifices on the altar of God, which is horribly evil. The evil one wants you to forget about God and to worship false things. One of his strategies for this is found in verse 12. He will throw truth to the ground. He will throw truth to the ground. Because if Satan can cause you to believe lies, he is pushing you farther away from God and farther and closer toward himself. The only way to counter the lies of Satan is to immerse yourself in the truth. And that truth is found in the word of God, both in its teaching, like we're doing now, and in your own reading of God's word. Now again, there are big things, big lies that you can believe, like people claiming that it doesn't really matter if you believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. You know, Christianity is about something else other than that. But it does matter if you believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Or, you know, that biblical sexual ethics are purely products of the time and the culture in which they were written. And if Moses and Paul knew then what we know now, the Bible would be different. Now these are particularly, I will say this, these are particularly Western and American approaches to the Bible that largely form an approach to Christianity that seek to conform God into us, into our image, rather than to do what the Bible is really meant to do through the power of the Holy Spirit, which is to conform us more into the likeness of Christ. But there are also small things. Like Satan whispering in your ear that you are only as valuable as you are beautiful. Or your ultimate worth is best determined by your bank account. Or that the more elite your school or the more elite your program of study, the more valuable you are as a human being. These are all lies. None of these are true. Satan's attempt to substitute God as the object of our worship with something of our own creation. He's trying to substitute idols into our lives for worship of God. And then finally, there is also this destruction of God's dwelling. Go back to verse 11. There's a prophecy 
of the temple of God being desecrated and overthrown. Now this happened during the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes, so immediately after this prophecy. This also happened again in 70 AD after the death of Jesus when the Romans attacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple which has not been rebuilt. And of course there's a ton of controversy regarding what the Bible teaches about the future of that actual building which bleeds into politics, about Israel and all kinds of things. But the point of this passage is that Satan attempts to destroy the purposes of God by destroying and defiling his dwelling place. Destroying and defiling his dwelling place. Now the question I think for us is this then, where does God dwell? Where does God dwell? We are now on the other side of the incarnation, meaning we are now on the other side of the first coming of Jesus Christ. That coming of Jesus Christ was described in the Gospels as Emmanuel, God with us. As Paul says in the book of Colossians, in Jesus Christ, the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. Or as John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God became flesh and dwelt among us. And very shortly before Jesus went to the cross, he challenged the religious leaders in Jerusalem by, he was standing outside the temple that was sitting in Jerusalem, and he said, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And then there's commentary on that, and it says they thought he was talking about the building, but Jesus was actually talking about his own body. He was talking about his death and his resurrection. Where does God dwell? God dwells in fullness in Jesus Christ. Christ, Emmanuel, who is God with us. Now, where does Jesus dwell? Well, Jesus dwells at the right hand of God the Father, yes, but he also dwells in his people, the church. 1 Peter 2, verse 5 says this, You yourselves are like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house. Meaning that Jesus unites himself to individuals, who trust in him by faith, and then he unites all of those individuals who trust in him together as one body, one house, one living house called the church. The book of Acts describes it as a temple not made by human hands, but by the power of God. So what does Satan want to do with this house? He wants to destroy it. He wants to destroy Christ's church. Not the building, but the people. Again, he shouts this and whispers this. He shouts when he sends agents of a communist regime in China into churches in the middle of worship services to arrest pastors and parishioners and to take them off to jail. Not yet to be heard from again. He shouts when people burst through the doors with bombs or guns to kill, to maim, to scare. But he whispers when the church turns on itself through division, through gossip, through splits, through a mentality of consumerism that turns churches simply into marketplace competitors competing for the same Christian consumer rather than being light of the gospel, a lighthouse, a lamp 
on a hill where people who are dying spiritually can come in and find life. Do you know what Satan wants to happen to our church? I'm getting like this, this, us, Christ the King. A lot of things. But one of the things I think is that he wants us to spend all of our time worrying about who is going to church down the street or to another church in our city. A perfectly fine church that preaches the gospel, that teaches Jesus. He wants us to worry about those people and wonder, how can we get those people who are going to a perfectly good church to come here? Why would we do that? That's insane. Rather than focus our attention on who is dying around us. Who does not have life? Who has no hope? Who can we serve? Where can we go in? Not only who can we draw in. So you're aware of how the devil wants to destroy the work of God in the world. So what do you do? What do you do? How do you live? And I am, this is not just a preacher's conclusion. This is the actual conclusion. You're aware and you're active. Perhaps, one, of my, one of my favorite parts, I love Daniel. There's so much about Daniel that's just awesome. The very end of Daniel 8 is completely awesome. We didn't read it, but verse 27 says this. And I, Daniel, so he receives this vision, right? And then Gabriel the angel comes down and tells him what this whole thing is about. And this is what happens to Daniel. It's very human. This is what would happen to you and me too. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. So Daniel freaks out, as anybody would, when this sort of thing happens to him. And then he gets up and he goes to work. And do you know who he works for? Let's remind ourselves... Who's the king? This is not a king. This is not a euphemism. This is not, I went about God's business. Although we're going to talk about that in a second. But that's not what Daniel did. He worked for King Belshazzar. He got up, put on his pants and his shoes and his coat. And he went to work. Representing God in the midst of this crazy, pluralistic, syncretistic, polytheistic culture that he had just been thrust into, not by his own choice. That is what God would have you to do with Daniel 8. Know that many antichrists have come, that more will come until the final battle when Jesus fully defeats sin and death. Know that Satan is intent on destroying the work of God in the world. He wants to discourage you. He wants to divide and to destroy God's church, to make the church of Christ ineffective, only thinking about itself and not thinking about its mission in the world. He wants you to cower in fear. He wants you to kind of go into your house and close the door and raise the drawbridge and keep yourself and your children and everybody else out of the world. He wants you to find other things in the world to be more valuable than he is and to give all of your best attention and all of your best energy there. He wants all of that and more. But what God would have you to do is to wake up in the morning tomorrow, put on your shoes, go out in the world and whatever sphere he has called you into, wherever he has called you, to work with all of your might to be salt and light for Jesus in the midst of it. He's going to take care of all of the rest. He will take care of all of the rest. He neither slumbers nor does he sleep. 
and the evil one does not stand a chance in the end. John Wesley, who was an Anglican who became the founder of Methodism in England, was known as a great itinerant preacher. He would get on horseback and he would ride from town to town to town to town and he would preach the gospel. Uh, and he would call people to, to trust and faith in Christ. And one day, while he was on his circuit, you know, riding around different towns preaching the gospel, a man stopped him and talked to him and he said, Mr. Wesley, he said, if you knew that you were only going to live for one more day, what would you do? And John Wesley reached into his saddlebag that was connected to his horse and he pulled out his journal and his journal contained his calendar and he flipped to the day that was going to be tomorrow in his real life. And he simply read out of his journal, his calendar, what he had scheduled for the very next day. And he said, that is what I would do. He put his journal back, put it back in his saddlebag and carried on. He said this because his goal was to serve Christ in whatever way that God was calling him to do it. He calls you to do that as well. As a student, as a mom, you know, here on Mother's Day to serve him in your mothering, in your job, whatever it is in your life. Tomorrow will you rise and serve the true king. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your scriptures. Father, we pray that you would teach and lead us through it now and encourage us with it, even as we go out from these walls into your world where you call us to serve you in all things. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.